Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the Neighborly Navigator podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Connell, and I also have Leah Larson here with me, who's going to step in in just a few moments. So this is our first episode of the year, and we're so excited to be back from the holidays and time off with family. With a new year comes new challenges and goals, and as most of you know, governments now more than ever face pressure and have been tasked with accelerating their technological journey by Treasury and HUD. Leveraging new technology has many well-known benefits for state and local governments. It can increase efficiency, improve compliance and security, and reduce costs. These tools can help organizations quickly migrate loads, create consistent infrastructure, and scale services with no downtime. We're really excited to welcome our guest speaker today, Dr. Adrienne Holloway. She's the former executive director for the Community Services Department of Harris County, Texas. And she has a wealth of knowledge and experience in government administration. Um, She's gonna share some best practices on how to successfully administer treasury and HUD programs and share some of her individual perspectives and key insights and why this technology is so critical in carrying out today's initiatives. So with that, with that said, let's get started with today's show. Leah, why don't you kick us off? Awesome. Thanks, Natalie. And a big neighborly hello to everyone listening. And as mentioned, I'm your host, Leah Larson. I'm your Senior Account Director at Neighborly Software for HUD Region 5, 6, 7, and 8. And I would like to welcome my good friend, Dr. Adrian Holloway. Adrian, first, I would like to congratulate you and the Harris County team, as well as Kevin Howard of Little Rock, Arkansas, for hosting one of the most amazing um, NCDA Region 6 conferences I've ever attended. I mean, just wow. HUD Director Stacia Johnson, surprise guest and selfie with Representative Sheila Jackson-Lee, not to mention the rooftop reception at the newly renovated Post Building downtown Houston. Huge round of applause for such a great conference. I felt uh, inspired when I left there. First, I have a question to ask you, and this is a huge debate here at Neighborly Software. Are you on Team Tots or Team Fries? Ooh, um, I would say Tots because they're usually a rare offering in restaurants, but when they are offered on the menu, I would go there. So um, yes, Team Tots. Awesome, I'm gonna have to share that with our team. Got another Team Tots in the house. (laughs) So let's start off with you telling us a little bit about your background in housing and community development and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, first, I wanted to thank you, Leah and Natalie, for letting me have this opportunity to speak with you and your listeners on how we are using technology in a much more effective way and and still room for growth there, but in the public sector. And I'm going to actually talk a little bit about the nonprofit sector as well, because I think it makes sense to do underscore that that partnership that exists. But yes, I've had kind of a long history in housing and community development. I started my career actually running a homeless youth shelter in uh, the Bronx borough of New York, working for a community development organization that had a breadth of different services. So that was my role. And it really helped me further understand the need for diversified housing and housing support services that communities need. And from that, I kind of built upon my experience working with other nonprofit organizations in actually bricks and mortar types of projects. So building housing in resource poor communities in Louisiana and Texas, as well as working on a major redevelopment of public housing in Los Angeles. And then 
those experiences actually piqued my interest in how I can potentially impact housing policy. So that drove my my direction into academia and received a PhD in political science with a concentration in public policy and public administration with really the interest in delving a bit more into the research aspect of the field, hopefully raising some issues of concern and developing some solutions to some of those concerns that I experienced as a practitioner. So then I took that and brought myself into the academic world and taught graduate courses that helped me share that experience and potential solutions that were generated through those dialogues with students to um, to them, hopefully piquing their interest in either entering the field of housing community development, but if not, supporting the work of practitioners in that area. And then I left academia and went to government again and worked at the city of Aurora in Illinois as their first chief innovation officer, where I was responsible for both the community services department work as well as the information technology department's work at the same time as developing innovation strategies for the city. It was a very um, intriguing and exciting position. And then from there, I went to Harris County to lead their community services department. So all of this kind of is a nice neat uh, thread that ties through all of my experiences, but really it just exemplifies my passion has been consistent in housing and community development through this time. That's an incredible background and thank you so much for sharing. I know Natalie and I have both followed some of the work that you've done across the country and you have definitely made a lot of positive impacts for communities across the United States. So talking a little bit about Harris County um, and just from you coming from there, you know, what was the total allocation amount that you were managing on behalf of Harris County and some of the programs that they were operating in that area? Sure. In the community services department, it was quite a uh, mortgage board of programs that we were responsible for housing, particularly low income affordable housing, both multifamily and single family homes, home repair programs, and home ownership programs. So those are kind of our staple um, levels of activity. Then we add to that infrastructure investments. And when you think about community development and housing development, there really needs to be this, this nice nexus between the the investment in necessary infrastructure. And that's when we think about uh, drainage systems and sidewalks and curbs and gutters. And so if you've walked in Houston communities and Harris County communities, you'll notice that not all, not all communities are, are made the same. And when you think about trying to invest in affordable housing, if you don't have the basics such as drainage and sewers and sidewalks, it really doesn't provide that type of environment you'd like somebody to be able to live in. So we invested in that. And then there was a whole host of different social and supportive services that we were responsible for. And most of this, if not all of this, was largely funded through our HUD funding. We are an entitlement community and they um, receive allocations on an annual basis. We are also responsible for disaster recovery activity, solely responsible for long-term disaster recovery for the county. And that includes its own set of programs and resources through a separate money source, though still coming from HUD, but it's a separate source. And that is when there's a federally declared disaster to which funding is gonna be allocated to, to the county, those funds come to our department and we work with stakeholders and residents to determine what are the best menu of programs that should be supported through those dollars. 
And then we're also two interesting kind of components to our work. We also are responsible for transit service in areas where Metro are not, or Natural is not providing any type of transit. So we have both on-demand and fixed route services that are funded through the FTA that are offered throughout the county as, you know, as best as we possibly can. And then, um, which is always kind of the, the outsider for, for many people to even know, but we are responsible for bereavement services. So it's a county statutory requirement that bereavement services be provided to the indigenous population. So we, we are actually the department that facilitates that work. So we operate two cemeteries. Uh, one is actually at capacity, so our, our newer one is still with capacity. And I, I like to always tell this story because people don't necessarily recognize that there are so many people who are declared unknown. So they die either in a situation where there isn't any identification and we cannot find any next of kin um, as a result of that. So we will then uh, either cremate them or bury them. But we do an extensive outreach, try to see if we can find some Mexican. But there was a, a situation most recently where someone we had buried years and years ago was able to be identified by her daughter who had been searching for her for years. And it was through a DNA registry that we participated in for missing individuals. So it's an interesting service we provide, but it's so meaningful. And I like to elevate it some because it doesn't get the attention that it, deser it deserves. And then finally, we offer some legal services as well for people who are dealing with different housing crises. So when you think about all of the programs that we operate, especially when you're adding in disaster recovery, we have close to about a billion dollar budget to support that work. Wow, that's incredible. Um, I had no idea about some of the programs you guys offered and being able to see some of the projects you guys implemented boots on the ground. Um, I was pretty impressed. Can you share some of those strategies and best practices you noted when administering those programs? I think one of the challenges, and I should say we had three different offices, about 300 member staff, both full-time and a few contractual members. I think some of the challenges with some of the programming is that we didn't necessarily have the understanding of best use of technology to help develop a much more efficient use of our time and of the work that we do. So when you think about the people that we serve in social services that can also be similar people that we're serving in our housing programs, we do need to be better. And I say this for the county, and as I mentioned with Natalie offline, I want to speak to some of the other municipal experiences that we have. Sometimes we're a little too solo oriented when we think about the impact that we have and we look at it from a programmatic perspective. But when we have the ability to look at a client across programs, we really could see the, the multifaceted impact that we have on families. And that is only possible when you have a bigger view and you know this is happening, but you have the data available to tell that nuanced story. So at the, the municipal level, it can be quite challenging for us to integrate the data from one system, one platform to another so that we can see, oh, this person has been served multiple times with this program or this person is being served across many programs. Let's highlight that. But my, my, my social services hat comes on and says, well, how else can we help this, this family? Because there's obviously a need there. And where does this family live? Is, there, is this within a community that's also experiencing similar need? It gives us information to, to further 
invest in in different people in different communities but largely it's how can we tell this more nuanced impactful story by looking at the data that's being generated by the programs that are being offered and that to me was the bigger challenge walking into the county we had so much going on but we weren't really telling our story right it sounds like you guys at the county level you know observe that you know, that could be a pitfall to some of your, your programs and obstacles if you don't have a good technology platform to kind of reduce that administrative burden. What are some key benefits your organization's uh, administration was able to realize for needing a use of technology? We started doing more of an inventory of the systems that we're using so we can identify what was being overly used but not necessarily uh, having an impact. So I'll give you an example. We were because of the pandemic, finally moved from a paper-based case management system to something a bit more digital. And that was was great. So that was one movement forward, but that was by by force and not by a thoughtful kind of approach to, to that movement. But we were able to start generating some, some data that way. But I will also say what we also we also needed to do is to make sure that the data we were generating was the data that was going to help us tell that story. So it, we had to not only look at the sources that we were using. So we we knew we moved from when I said paper based to digital. It's like paper based to a spreadsheet. Well, a spreadsheet is great, but if a spreadsheet resides on someone's hard drive, it doesn't allow access for other people to add to that impact. So we we need to make better use of some of the other systems that we've had. So one of the long term long standing systems that we use in case management, which is case worthy was one of those systems that allowed for multiple users to input data at a particular time. But it was only designed to answer the questions we had at that time of engagement with the software provider. So as situations become more complex, as resources become more diverse, you need a system that's able to integrate all of the information that needs to be gathered while still maintaining the integrity of what was already gathered in the past. So to have a system that is customizable is really important. And Caseworthy proved to be that once we started asking for different information. So I think that was something we needed to, to actually focus on going in, saying we have a great system, we use it, but do we really maximize the use of this technology? Can it really do the work that we need it to do today. It did the work we needed to do 10 years ago, but does it work for what we need today? And if it's customizable, it is. So that was one piece. So we moved to paper-based, to spreadsheets, to really utilizing our software in a much more effective way. There's a lot more growth opportunities there. I think one of the challenges that I would um, continue to put forward, in, especially in municipal government, is the ability for data to be integrated across different departments. Because when you think about the greater municipal responsibility, it's more than what's happening at the department level. It's really what's happening at the department's level aggregated to the strategic priorities at the top. And a lot of these decisions are made in isolation. So our use of caseworthy is a decision we made. Um, it's a good tool for us, but is that a good tool for economic development? Is that a good tool for public health? Is that a good tool for flood control? I mean, it's it's a way for us to look at, are we getting the best information that we can to, to tell the, the broader municipality story? We can tell the department story, but I think we need to get beyond that. 
But I, but what we did at the department was really just that, take an inventory of all the systems and processes we were using, land on the ones that were the most effective to tell our story, and then build them out as best as possible to be able to capture the information that we needed so that we can report out the impact that we were having. That's great. And one of the things I know I've been hearing across the country is that when you have a good technology platform, you're, you're really making a community impact. And so from your perspective, if you had all of the stars aligned, you know, does, is there a couple of examples of how you think technology could enhance your organization's community impact? Yes, I think, I think that those decisions really need to come from the top and it needs to start with some level of a, uh, a strategic plan at the municipal leadership level. And then that is going to help everyone identify what its key performance indicators would be, what data needs to be collected, and then have that enterprise system be able to be deployed at the department level so that we're all contributing to that same database that is also able to be integrated with other data sources. Because to me, it's always that nuanced story. It's beyond just the the individual data, it's the collective data, and then it's the, the macro data or everything that's happening in the community that we can tie into it to see what impact we're having. But I think those decisions really need to be made at, at the top so that we are not relying on these individual silo-oriented systems identification and, and, and um, procurement to be able to come together on its own to say, hey, what kind of impact are we having on the city? What kind of impact are we having on the county when we think about poverty alleviation? Well, there's so many different entities within those municipal governments that are doing work that's either, uh, I would say, very complementary or maybe somewhat complementary if you could tell a different type of story, but you have to have something that's gonna bring it all together. And that's, that's what I would, recommend. It has to start from the top. It's really difficult for systems and platforms to start from the bottom and be able to capture what you need to be able to capture to tell that greater story. Yeah, and that's understood. You know, community impact, we talk about a little bit about data and how that impact over the last three years, talk about COVID-19 um, and being able to, we need that data to really drive decision-making for all of the need that's, um, you know, people have needed across the country. What do you think are some of the emerging trends you're seeing amongst governments now that we're slowly coming out of the pandemic? Remote work, is, I feel it's here to stay. So I think we were all required to move into that new way of working and way of living without a lot of strategic thought around it, which just made sense, right? We just all had to, to shut in. I think we need to to surround remote work with more strategy, particularly around how be, to be more effective in collaboration and information sharing. Um, I think some of the, the comments around working remotely is having teams meetings for everything. Whereas if we were in person, we would, meeting, we would be meeting much less. <laughs> so how do we allow ourselves to use this new approach to work and not feel either the need to, to micromanage which sometimes calls for all these team meetings, but also to find ways in which to utilize tools that facilitate collaboration in a, an effective way that's done in a remote environment. So we have to now add the strategy and thought around the remote work in the public sector. I think that's one that's here to, here to stay. And also, you know, the pandemic helped us identify different ways in which to 
utilize available tools to engage community members. So the use of social media, I think, increased significantly during the pandemic by the public sector to find ways in which to get information to residents and to receive information from residents. That's here to stay, but I think it also needs to be thoughtful and combined with live virtual events. There's always going to be communities that we have to remember are, that are not digitally connected the way that we would hope. So they should be not shut out from access to information or participation in different activities. So we do have to be thoughtful. And that to me is where another opportunity data analysis to come and inform how do we conduct outreach and engagement for this particular program if this is our target audience. And we can look at data, whether it's census data or proprietary data to say this community that we're targeting has a low internet access rate. So would using a webinar or using digital tools be the most efficient way to, to access that community? And largely would be no. So how do we, how are we able to integrate more live events with virtual events to ensure greater participation? So again, adding some strategy and thought around what we had to do in the pandemic to make it a much more efficient tool while we're outside of moving out of the pandemic. So those are two things that I think um, are, are exciting. Added, uh, added features to the world of public service. I think we were a bit more resistant to that when we compare it to the private sector, but it's proven to be a different way for us to work and it's proven to be effective. We just need to, to grow it. Right, and I know uh, I've heard of a lot of turnover in the COVID pandemic and the emergency funding. You know, In your opinion, what do you think are some of the biggest hurdles government entities are facing today? When it comes to funding? Just in general, any hurdle that you think they might be facing? Well, I, I will say with the infusion of millions, millions of dollars into communities to address the impact that the, the pandemic has had on our communities and our lives, um, a lot of of what's being asked for the recipients of those funds by the federal government is expanding the reach in a, in a much broad way, but sometimes the capacity is not necessarily there. And I say that for government, but I also say that as a reality for nonprofits that we work with. And when you are at the public sector and you receive a lot of these dollars, you're not often delivering the programs that those funds are designed to support directly. You work with your community partners. So the expectation that community partners are available and able to step up the way that we've been asking them to is, is quite unrealistic because it's a lot of work with a lot of money that needs to be accounted for. So I think the challenge that we see is not having the capacity to be able to deliver as much of the programming that we would like to because the capacity just isn't there. The, this is the situation where the funds are really out outshining the, the ability to spend them in a much more effective way. So I think that is a, as a challenge. It's very um, much a quick turnaround in the use of these dollars. So you have to figure out how are you going to be able to report out the impact that the dollars have had in a short period of time. So as you're receiving the funds and you're planning for the use of the funds and you're identifying partners to help expend those funds, 
the same time you're figuring out what are the ways in which you can evaluate your impact because those reports are going to be done, be required and requested relatively soon. It's not like a HUD funded program that's you receive funds on an annual basis like we do. We know what that pattern is. There's a lot of building the plane as you're flying it in this situation, both from the recipient of the funds as well as the funders. Um, if and this kind of is a, in the kind of the spirit of disaster recovery, if you're familiar with how those funds are allocated, is typically going to be differentiated based on the way that Congress has decided to respond to that particular disaster. So no funding scenario is always going to be the same as previous disaster funding scenarios. So from the recipient's end, you're always trying to figure out, well, what is it that I can do? What, what are the requirements that I'm going to have to meet to use these dollars? And sometimes those requirements are changed after it's been communicated. So we saw that with the Treasury experience, where the funds were awarded and we were told what it is we can do, and then we received more information. And sometimes that additional information was a bit contrary to what we thought, and we had to kind of revamp. And you have that happen a lot in disasters, in the disaster space, and we've seen this with the Treasury dollars. I guess you can call it disaster as well. But that's a bit challenging when you are leaning on nonprofits to help do that work, when you're trying to kind of changing the, the rules of the game on them midstream. So I think that's you know, being able to articulate how you've been able to course correct when those changes came in is going to be important for municipal governments in response to these dollars as well. And then it's long-term impact, right? Um, depending on how the programs have been designed to use these funds, what happens when the funds, this is always me, and maybe I'm like the doomsday person, but I always say, what happens when the funds are gone, when, when the program has ended? What have you started that you may not be able to continue and is the short-term infusion sufficient enough to, to explain away the, the, the lack of a long-term investment? So it's always, how are we gonna transition out of the program so we're not going to be able to offer longer and see how we're gonna make sure that people aren't caught in kind of the crosshairs of that transition. So I think that's something that municipal governments need to, if they haven't already looked at when they're looking to spend these dollars. That's a really good point. I'm pretty sure folks that are listening are probably going to be thinking about what you just said. And I definitely can uh, resonate with the building the plane while flying it. I'm sure folks listening can resonate with that as well. And Dr. Holloway, I just want to thank you for your time today and for sharing your background and experience. It's been such a pleasure having you on our Neighborly Navigator. Um, Natalie, uh, when can our listeners tune into this episode and how can they access uh, yeah, so um, I, I too would like to thank you, Dr. Holloway, for participating today. We really enjoyed having you on the show. Everyone be on the lookout for this episode on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Radio, Radio Public, um, and Neighborly Software social media channels and website. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.